and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we take a wander through the woods of Scottish history, mythology and nature. I'm Jenny, an exiled princess on the run. And I'm Annie, an archivist who just reads about such things in the history books. And together we make a hardy podcasting duo. Yeah. Just doing our best, really. We're we're trying. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying. In the previous two episodes, we've been looking at all things Battle of Culloden, from the events leading up to the battle, to the battle itself, and the immediate aftermath that has long-lasting effects in the Highlands. In this episode, we're once more returning to 1746, but this time we are following Bonnie Prince Charlie on his wild and winding evasion from capture and almost certain death. If you haven't listened already to the first two episodes, it might be worth heading back now and catching up with us. And for those of you who did listen, but have the memory of a slippery herring, then here's a quick recap. Bonnie Prince Charlie, a mixed European prince from Italy with Scottish heritage, led a Jacobite army of mainly Scottish clans into battle against a British government army. This government army was commanded by the Hanoverian king's youngest son, the Duke of Cumberland. This was a battle for the throne of Britain and the last stand of the exiled Stuarts against the ruling Hanoverians. On the 16th of April, 1746, these armies charged into battle at Culloden and the Jacobite forces were quickly defeated. But amongst the mayhem, our pal BPC slipped right out of sight like a herring. Bonnie Prince Charlie hadn't prepared for defeat. With no post culloden plan in place, he fled, not knowing what the next days would bring. Midges. Loads and loads of midges. I like the heron analogy. I like to imagine him as a heron trying to evade... I don't know. Pike? What eats a herring? <laughs> <laughs> The pikes of the British government army. Hey, it's a wee pun there. <laughs> well, well, well done, Jenny. Well done. Before the battlefield had fallen silent, Bonnie Prince Charlie, or as I call him, BPC, had already fled, led away by his guards. It wasn't just his life on the line but also the whole Stuart dynasty. His family's royal bloodline, Scotland's claim to power in Britain, and his Catholic faith's last chance at reclaiming control throughout the kingdom. Well, not quite. You see, Bonnie Prince Charlie isn't the final Jack by heir and wasn't really the last hope of the House of Stuart because Bonnie Prince Charlie did have a wee brother, Henry Benedict Stuart, But instead of inciting rebellions, Henry decided to verse himself in scripture and became a cardinal. Hmm. Henry never really made any effort to claim the throne, though I like to think of him as Henry IX. I don't know why. I just, it tickles me. The thought tickles me. I think I'd like to see a Henry trumping Henry VIII. But how do you follow Henry VIII, though? He's a cardinal. He's not going to add more wives on. Yeah, and it's not Scotland's last claim to power in Britain because we are still struggling for power in Britain. 
Um, but anyway, let's return to Henry the Ninth's older brother, Bonnie Prince Charlie, <laughs> in the aftermath of Culloden. As Bonnie Prince Charlie's troops were being slaughtered and it was clear that he had lost the battle, he gave his final instruction as he was galloping away. Sauve Kepu! So this means save yourself or run for your lives in French. After his final exclamation, he galloped off. So quickly, in fact, that he left all his personal belongings behind. There's no time for expensive trinkets when there's the biggest target in the land on your back. The very bonnet from the prince's head flew off and one of his guards gave him his own as a replacement. And thus began, with bonnets flying, the wild prince chase. An epic cat and mouse journey that lasted six months and took BPC and the Hanoverian soldiers trying to catch him on a 1,000 mile tour around the highlands and islands of Scotland. And that's not just a random number, Annie. I mapped this route out. They travelled 1,600 kilometres to evade capture. Wow. I would gallop 500 miles and I would walk 500 (laughs) more just to be the prince that is the prince that doesn't end up with his head guillotined on the floor. (laughs) That was improv. I don't often get to do improv. (laughs) I was just going to go with North Coast 500, eat your heart out. But I don't know. I liked yours. (laughs) And in fact, actually, Bonnie Prince Charlie would have loved the North Coast 500. I could only imagine what he would have given to be all warmly wrapped up in a wee camper van every night and have a nice smooth road that he could travel on the whole time. Instead, he hoofed it almost entirely on foot and spent many a night under the Scottish elements. Now, it's fair to say that prior to the 1745 Jacobite uprising, BPC was not exactly familiar with his ancestral homeland or people. In fact, he had never even been to Scotland before he landed on the shores of Eriskay and started the uprising. Throughout the months following Culloden, he got to know the people and the land very well indeed. So this is an incredibly dangerous time for the Stuart heir. There's a £30,000 bounty on his head, which is really hard to convert into modern money. Um, I'd say likely over £3 million in today's cash. So it's a very heavy bounty for his head. £3 million for a prince. You can give me like 50 quid and a half drunk bottle of Prosecco. And I'd be like, he's over there under that big rock that's shaped just like a prince. (laughs) (laughs) Such a traitor, Jenny. But this is... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a massive flip-flopper. I'm like a herring out of water myself. <laughs> but this is such a massive bounty, so it's really impressive that Charles lasted as long as he did. And folks who were helping him to avoid government forces and stay hidden were risking their own lives. And also, remember, Hanoverian troops are not just hunting this rogue prince but also any of the Jacobites who fought at Culloden, or any Highlanders that they don't like the look of. Immediately after Culloden, the prince's guides took him about 10 miles south of Inverness, where they had wine and supper with Lord Lovett, a famously fickle flip-flopper whose numerous changes of allegiance had earned him the nickname The Fox. Lucky for BPC, The Fox had supported the Jacobites this time around and hid the prince, 
In the morning, the retreat continued. But not like a retreat at the Fox's place. Like, it's not a spa. This was not relaxing in the slightest. It was more like a run-for-your-life kind of retreat, as the Duke of Cumberland's forces were never far behind. I mean, either way, they get covered in mud and there's probably some kind of intermittent fasting. (laughs) That's true. Sleeping on a bed of heather is probably quite good for your spine. (laughs) (laughs) Their party followed the Great Glen fault line, southwest from Inverness, but they branched off before they hit the coast and continued travelling westward through Glen Peen. As they ventured this way, they were forced to abandon their horses as the roads were too rough for them to continue. BPC was passed between loyal clansmen. When there was no one to supply food, his guides would catch him fresh salmon. You know, this is quite a retreat, Annie. Salmon on the road. Or as BPC might say, salmon en route. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that joke with a French accent, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after 11 days of travelling hastily across the country, he left the mainland and fled by boat to the Outer Hebrides. So, Bonnie Prince Charlie wrote a letter to the clan chiefs explaining why he was essentially running away. So, Jenny, although he was born in France and raised in Italy, um, documents suggest that Bonnie Prince Charlie spoke very good English, sometimes Ah. with an English, Scots, or even Irish lilt. So, you can take any of these British accents and it will be as accurate as anyone else's interpretation of Bonnie Prince Charlie. When I came into this country... No, that's still French. <laughs> okay. When I came into this country, it was my only view to do all in my power for your goods and safety. What accent is I, this, Jenny? I'm literally trying to put them all together into one. Okay. When I came into this country, it was my only view to do all in my power for your good and safety. This I will always do as long as my life is in moi. But alas, I see with grief, I can at present do little for you on this side of the water. For the only thing that can now be done is to defend yourselves till the French assist you. I am of little use here, whereas by my going to France instantly, however dangerous it may be, I will certainly engage the French court, either to assist us effectually and powerfully. Or, at least, to procure you some terms, as you would not obtain other ways. My presence there, I flatter myself, will have more effect to bring this sooner to determination than anybody else. My departure should be kept as long, private and concealed as possible, on one pretext or another, which you will fall upon. May the Almighty bless and direct you. 28th of April, 1746. So that was an accent, Jenny. <laughs> that was like nine accents. <laughs> My skills are growing. I can multi-accent. <laughs> so Bonnie Prince Charlie has drummed up a massive rebellion in the Highlands, but he bolts as soon as his cause looks lost. However, I have to add that the Western Islands were a brilliant place for him to hide. And Charles has this erratic escape route, which is just zigzagging and crisscrossing about the different islands of Benbecula, South and North Uist, and Lewis and Harris. It seems like half the time he doesn't even know where he's going, so it's 
really difficult for the government troops who are trying to track him. Yeah, it's like a surprise every time, even for him. Yes, and this constant cross-island travelling wouldn't have been easy for the prince and his entourage because back then they didn't have the convenient ferries that you can just hop on and off. Mm. They ate a lot of fish (laughs) and stavik, a kind of frothy oatmeal dish. Usually you see it being made with crowdy, which is a creamy highland cheese, or just, just some kind of milk or dairy Um, But unfortunately for Bonnie Prince Charlie, him and his entourage were making it with salt water. So it sounds like it would just be a really bad porridge or kind of gruel-like flavour that they would be eating frequently. Mmm, Annie, this retreat is losing its appeal to me, I'll be (laughs) honest. (laughs) On many occasions, the prince and his guides were just a few hundred metres from capture. And yet, every time, they managed to slip through the government soldiers' fingers... Slippery Prince Charles strikes again. And there are some really brilliant descriptions of Bonnie Prince Charlie evading his pursuers. Once when they were out in a boat with their wee sails raised, they saw a man of warship pursuing them, led by Commander Ferguson, who was hunting them. And their little boat had to suddenly row as fast as their wee hearts could take them. They were pursued for three leagues and eventually hid out in a wee bothy. The door of the bothy was so low that they had to dig it out and then put Heather for the prince's knees so that he could kind of crawl, squat in. But what is amazing about Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape after Culloden is quite how long he lasted on the run, not being caught. And you can see why this escape is so heavily romanticised, because... At this point in time, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the folks of the Highlanders are real underdogs who are subverting the power of the British army by keeping Charlie hidden. I like to think of it like a cartoon. You know, it's like this big bad Captain Hook coming after this wee rowboat which has got all its little men going as fast as they can. That's my way of romanticising it. (laughs) Turning it into a cartoon. Jenny, are you ready to meet one of the most romanticised figures of Highland history? (gasps) Is it Annie Lennox? No. Lorraine Kelly? No. Is it me? Absolutely not, Jenny. (laughs) Annie Lennox is from Aberdeen, Lorraine Uh Kelly is from Glasgow, and you're Mm -hmm. from Paisley. So none of you even qualify for the most (laughs) romanticised Highlander competition, (laughs) let alone win any awards here. Well, okay, first off, I agree that we're not in the Highlands, but Gerald Butler and David Tennant are from Paisley. They're both highly romanticised. <laughs> you <No>. are eliminated. <laughs> okay, so who is the most romanticised Highlander of all time? So we're going to be looking at Flora MacDonald. Flora was born in 1722 in South to Marion and taxman Ranald MacDonald. Did he have flaming red hair and a big red nose? And giant feet? <laughs> why, why do you say that, Jenny? Did he sell burgers? <laughs> no free toys for you, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably good. They're a choking hazard. So instead of that, Jenny, he was a taxman, which Boring. is a kind of minor gentry in Scotland, often related to the layered and generally 
the taxman lets a large piece of land and breaks it down to sublet to tenants. So Flora is coming from a family that has a wee bit of power and influence and she'll be able to use this to her advantage later, so remember that. Flora's father died when she was only two and after this her mother remarried. So Flora was mostly brought up by her father's cousin, MacDonald of Sleet. Sleet is in the beautiful island of Skye. By the 21st of June, 1746, Bonnie Prince Charlie had found himself in South Eust, with the king's men hot on his well-worn heels, just a few miles away. South Eust is an island in the Outer Hebrides, which are sometimes collectively known as the Long Isle, and Bonnie Prince Charlie was in a dire situation. But, luckily for our prince, the locals were concocting a plan to get him off the island and over to Skye. At this time, Flora MacDonald was 24 years old, but she wasn't a die-hard Jacobite. In fact, not only were her stepfather and fiancé both in the Hanoverian army, but her stepfather was the commander of the local pro-government militia. But although they were both in the Hanoverian army, neither fought at Culloden. However, Flora was persuaded to help the young prince by an influential friend. And when we look at the archives, we can see how the escape plan took shape. Jenny, can you be Flora MacDonald? From one romanticised Scot to another, Annie, I would love to be. I did know where the young pretender was, but I had only heard he was somewhere on the Long Island, that he'd stayed at my brother's shilling, a wee hut on the hills. About the 21st of June... O'Neill, or as we call him Nelson, proposed to me that as I was going to Skye, that the young pretender should go with me. So the young pretender is another name for Bonnie Prince Charlie, and it's often what he's called in the government records who don't like calling him the young prince or the claimant to the throne. They like to call him the young pretender to really push forward the idea that he had no right to be trying to claim the British throne. I went and stayed with Lady Clanranald for three days, and she communicated the scheme to me. Lady Clanranald would furnish clothes for the young pretender, as my dresses would be too little for him. The prince was a tall and handsome man. We were frequently updated at Clanranald's house with information on where the young pretender was and what preparations had been taken for our voyage. But, at the same time, we were pushed to hasten to get our affairs in readiness for going off. It was urgent, you see. We did not find the young pretender in the place we had first been told, but we followed his informants to a place called Roy Chenish, where we found him, taking with us the woman's clothing, which he would be dressed in. Here, we heard of General Campbell coming to South Uist, and that Captain Ferguson was within a mile of us. When we got this information... We sat up all night at a shilling called Clochenish, terrified to be caught. General Campbell, having come in from Bernaray and passing not far from us, put us again into great fears. However, we continued there till about nine at night, when the young pretender, myself, one MacAchran, and five men for the boat's crew embarked and set out to sea to escape in a small boat. Lady Clanranald had provided provisions for the voyage. So here we're seeing our Bonnie Prince Charlie disguised in Lady Ranald's clothing, impersonating Betty Burke, 
who is Flora MacDonald's Irish maid. And in his disguise as a maid, he boards a wee boat and sets sail across the sky. Annie, this is the original Drag Race. Drag Race 1746. Category is on the run. Way. <laughs> I checked that joke with three Drag Race fans and they all liked it. <laughs> I actually love Betty Book as a drag name. I think it has so many different layers to it. But I'm guessing that you've got a better one, Jenny. The Slippery Pretender. <laughs> Bonnie Princess Charlene. Or we could just go with the classic Charles Edward Lewis John Casimir Sylvester Severino Maria Stewart. That's just his name, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Annie, and they sashayed all the way to Sky. <laughs> but his journey was far from over. They travelled to Kingsbury House and stayed the night there. Flora continues her statement. I had a room to myself, but the young pretender and Macachran lay in the same room. At this time, he appeared in women's clothes, his face being partly concealed by the shadow of a hooded cloak. You wouldn't have recognised him. The family at Kingsbury's house never inquired who the disguised person was, but I observed them whispering, as if they suspected him to be some person that desired not to be known. I know from the servants that they suspected him to be MacLeod of Bernera, who had been in the rebellion. Kingsbury must have suspected it was the young pretender, but he never said so to me. In the morning, Flora and Charlie set out for Portree, where Boat was waiting to take him to Rasse, another island closer to the mainland. But by this point, Flora... I desired the young pretender might put on his own clothes somewhere on the road to Portree, as I had observed that the other dress made him rather more suspected than suspicious. And I'll be honest, he wasn't the best drag queen I've ever seen. So clearly the disguise wasn't working quite as well as they had hoped. But still, <laughs> the prince was not betrayed and made it to Rasse. Now this tale has become material for Scottish legend. Through countless poems, songs and stories, Flora has come to epitomise the rebel Jacobites, loyal to the last, continuing their resistance to the government months after the defeat at Clodden. And while BPC escaped, two weeks later, Flora was arrested. Such was the severity of her crime that she was taken to the Tower of London. So the Jacobite prisoners were not treated well at all. However, Flora actually leans into the romanticism that is developing around her. Now, Flora is seen as a bit of a paradox of her time. A delicate, petite woman, but not at all fragile. She's rebellious and powerful, aiding in a Jacobite plan that outsmarts the British government trackers. But artists and writers began to portray Flora as being this whimsical Jacobite heroine. And she plays into this, even posing in portraits with a Jacobite rose. But remember, Flora comes from a family with Hanoverian sympathies. And her family managed to arrange for her to live outside of the tower in a situation that we would consider house arrest today. Flora was so enchanting to the people of London that she received some very powerful guests, even royalty. It's said that Frederick, Prince of Wales, was even one of these guests. He's the son of the Hanoverian king. 
and he asked her why she had helped Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender, to escape. Flora responded, Ah, I helped him out of charity, and I would have done the same thing for you, Your Highness, had I found you in similar distress. And Prince Frederick was taken aback by her honesty and, and bluntness, but he could see that her actions were driven by charity and kindness, so he actually supported her to be comfortable in her imprisonment. Flora was released after a year and returned to Scotland. Her bravery and actions were never forgotten, and today a bronze statue of her stands proudly outside Inverness Castle, looking down the Great Glen towards her home of Skye. I really love the story of Flora MacDonald because she challenged people in positions of high power about their perceptions of Highland folks. She supported Bonnie Prince Charlie out of kindness, not because she had any big, you know, political goals. She just wanted to help out someone in great need. But then she composed herself into a Jacobite heroine and became a legend because of it. She controlled perceptions of her and lent into the narratives that would aid her. And yet the essence of Flora MacDonald that everyone remembers her for is just that warm-hearted choice to help out a rebel prince on the run. Yeah, she played the cards she got dealt incredibly well and she's like an olden-time influencer. But what is happening to Bonnie Prince Charlie? Because this isn't the end of his journey. He remains on the run for another three months. And the danger of capture and death was never far away. In the following summer months, BPC and his guides were constantly on the move. Evading government troops by the skin of their teeth, they wound their way round the highlands. They first headed north and almost made it back to Inverness, before turning and heading down south again. Then inland once more, before looping back out to the west coast. Aye, and to give an idea of the travel involved in this, we spent nights in Rasa, Elagal, Malig, Boradil, the Braes of Marar, Lacharkeg, Corriscaradil, Glenshiel. They were awful midges at Strathclooney, let me tell you. Corragoyth, Glencarrach, Fasnacoil, Glengarry, Lacharkeg, the Braes of Glenkingy, Ben Alder, Melanur, Corvoy, and Achnacarry. Oh, I had blisters on every inch of my foot. And let me tell you, if I never see another midgey again, it'll be too soon. And so finally, on the 20th of September, six months after Culloden, BPC, our slippery prince himself, finally made it to his last stop in Scotland, Borradale, where he'd already been three times before. (laughs) (laughs) They really were just running loops around the highlands and islands, weren't they? But in his final time in Borradale, there was a French ship waiting for him. Ah, bonjour, Bonnie Prince Charlie. How good to see you. Sorry we are six months late. It has been a long summer. (laughs) (laughs) So Bonnie Prince Charlie boarded this vessel and truly defeated left Scotland. He never returned again. His uprising was in ruins. It had been crushed. And with it, his claim to the British throne, his father's lifelong dreams, and probably most importantly the hope of a great many Highlanders that Prince Charlie's promises might alleviate their poverty just a little bit. The party's over, troops. Back to the old desk jobs at the Vatican, I guess. 
Well, initially, Bonnie Prince Charlie returned to France, not the Vatican, but he was expelled a couple of years later after a treaty was signed between France, Britain, and some of the other European powers who had all been warring. One of the terms stated that the French would no longer support Charles Edward Stuart as heir to the British throne and instead recognise the Hanoverian succession as legitimate. With no support in France, another nail was added to his cause's coffin. As the years passed, adrift and exiled in Europe, Charles became a drinker and had many affairs, failed relationships and children. The final blow came with the death of his father, James, in 1766. The Pope had recognised James as the King of England, Scotland and Ireland, but with his passing, the Pope did not pass this recognition on to Charles. Without the support and backing of the Catholic Vatican, the coffin was firmly closed and finally buried. I find the reality of Bonnie Prince Charlie's life after Culloden to be quite sad, really. And it sits in stark contrast with how it's often portrayed in the modern retellings of Culloden. Like Flora, he's been heavily romanticised. And the reality is that he was a young man at the time of Culloden and his life never really recovered from the defeat there. But then again, I suppose, how do you recover from the injustice of knowing that you should be king of an incredibly powerful country? I don't know. I'd probably turn to the champagne too. Well, remember that he was standing against the might of the British government. The 1745 Jacobite Rising that Bonnie Prince Charlie had started had its own moments of triumph and picked up a huge amount of momentum. But as this momentum dissipated and with the defeat at Culloden, it was never going to reignite again. The flames of that fire had definitely been put out. But also that the uprising itself brought the focus of the British government to the Highlands and they put in massive reinforcements to ensure that this wouldn't be happening again in the years after Culloden. And when you compare what happened to the folks in the Highlands to what happened to Bonnie Prince Charlie, he had a life after Culloden. He was able to live comfortably in Europe and die as an old man. He is just a man who had a great deal of power, who betrayed and took advantage of the Highland people. There, I I said it, I said it. Yes, and his life was much nicer than many of his supporters who were unable to flee to France. Remember Lord Lovett from earlier? The fox, known for switching allegiance to suit his own interests. Well, he was captured after Culloden and taken to Tower Bridge in London. Here, he was convicted of treason and beheaded for his support of the Jacobite cause. So, BBC didn't get off too badly, if you ask me. He had a nice tan by the end of it, at least. And so, Annie, we conclude our unexpected three-part series on Culloden. There is so much to explore and unpack with this battle, and yeah, I'm really glad that we took the time to delve into the various aspects of it that we did. Well, actually, there's so many other elements we could discuss here, so we could make this into a 12-part, a 20-part no. series. No, 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 no. You know what? I think I think we should just put our little bonnet on this and call it a lost cause. <laughs> Just like Bonnie Prince Charlie did. Oh, Jenny. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of the romanticisation of the Jacobites is thinking about Highland people who suffered in the aftermath of Culloden. 
And people aren't actually thinking of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Royal House of Stuart, but for some reason they paint Bonnie Prince Charlie with the same brush of tartan and bonnets as they do the Highlanders, which I think is, is really unfair to the people here. Both the Stuarts and Hanoverians were completely detached from Highland culture and just used the Highland people for their own profits. We needed a revolution, not an uprising, Jenny. We needed an alternative to the monarchy, not just a replacement. Indirect too. <laughs> <laughs> but before we incite anything, and that gets wildly out of hand, thank you so much for joining us at Culloden and on our wild prince hunt. If you enjoy listening to Stories of Scotland, then please do tell your friends and give us a share on social media. And if you can give us a five-star rating and leave us a lovely little review or any semi-positive review, <laughs> it's the main way that this podcast can grow and that other people are able to find us. We are a small independent podcast made in the Highlands of Scotland. And if you'd like to help support us as we make these episodes, you can also join our Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. For the price of a box of shortbread a month, you can help buy us shortbread while also receiving bonus content about lots of weird and wonderful Scottish tidbits. We'd like to welcome all our new shortbread supplying Patreons this week. Eva E. Likely a beautiful unicorn from Glenafric. W. Corbella. Possibly a selkie from an ancient island lost in the North Sea. Natalie B. Definitely a fairy hidden in a broch. Destiny W. Certainly some kind of magical, shape-shifting forest creature, usually in the form of a beautiful fawn. Jackie L. I suspect to be a kelpie, deep in Loch Lochy. The lockiest loch uh, of all the lochs. And Coral A. Coral A has to be a mermaid, because it's the coral, you see, the coral under the sea, a mermaid from the land of the waves. Thank you all so much for supporting our podcast and thank you all for listening along to this episode. We appreciate every one of you. It's amazing how much our podcast has been growing lately and how many new listeners are coming along. It's still very overwhelming for me. <laughs> Slangeva. Slangeva.